the struggle to save the world's largest rainforest, the Amazon. Wildfires moving with blinding speed. Industrial practices are having a devastating impact and severely depleting fish populations. Operation Climate presents our threats to nature series. Hey everyone, I'm Claire and I'm going to be your host on today's episode, where we dive into the topic of biodiversity in our waterways. For me, the oceans remind me of happy memories with family and friends. For scientists, when they hear the ocean, they may think of the fact that it is home to between 500,000 and 10 million marine species. For someone in the seafood industry, they may think of it as a source of food. And for indigenous communities living along waterways, it may remind them of their way of life, cultural history, and connection to the earth. But whatever it be, economic, scientific, or cultural, I think that most of us have some connection to our waterways. Unfortunately, like most parts of nature, the biodiversity in our waterways is under pressure. The marine environments that produce 50% of our oxygen on Earth are being pushed to their limit. And while this reality can be really scary, I think there's a lot of hope and action that can be spurred when each of us leverages our unique connection to the waterways to protect them. Hey everyone, I'm Jessie. And I'm Luca. And today we bring in two guests, Pat Schnettler and Naria Alicia Garcia, both with very different life experiences and connections to our waterways. Yet despite the differences in their stories, they both are using their connection to our waterways to help address the problems they face and find pathways forward. So to get us started, tell me a little bit about Naria. Who is she and what does she do? Nuria is a youth activist who seeks to preserve both indigenous practices and the sacredness of the earth. One of the ways that Nuria devotes herself to this goal is through a prayer journey called Run for Salmon. My name is Nidia Alicia. I'm Chicana Indígena, born and raised in the Calma Territory, also known as the Rogue Valley in Southern Oregon. And for the past six years, I've been in this deep, devoted work to being in service to the waters, particularly to the water caretakers that in the Pacific Northwest, actually from Alaska all the way down to Baja, the caretakers of the water are the salmon. So it's been an honor to, you know, reconnect to my humanity through an understanding of my interdependence on other more than human beings who I owe everything to. One for Salmon, I don't think I'm familiar with this group. Could you tell me a little bit about their work? Yeah, so salmon are essential to healthy ecosystems by bringing essential nutrients to the environment. In Northern California, the Shasta Dam was built around 75 years ago and continues to prevent the salmon from returning home. To raise awareness about this issue, but also about the importance of protecting waterways, strengthening salmon runs, and revitalizing indigenous lifeways more broadly, Run for Salmon was founded by the Winnemem Wintu tribe. Here's how Naria explains it. Yeah, so Chief Kaleen Sisk and the Winnemem Wintu tribe set out on a prayer a couple of years ago with this deep knowing of like, you know, the salmon are on the verge of extinction. And the Winnemem Wintu tribe has a prophecy that says, that when there are no more salmon in the rivers, there will be no more Wintu. And so for them, you know, in upholding that prophecy, they knew they had to do something and that there needed to be 
a massive reawakening and re-remembrance for not just the Wintu people, but all of the other people who live on their territory and on the territories along that watershed. And so our prayer has been to follow the salmon. You know, Chief Kelly says we need to follow the salmon. They're going to lead us. They're going to show us the way. And so Run for Salmon is a 300-mile prayerful journey that literally follows the salmon from the mouth of the Bay Delta all the way up to the spring on Buyan Puyuk, Mount Shasta, which is for the Wintu people where creation began. And so this prayer is about waking everybody up along the river, everybody who is connected to this water, waking them up and helping them remember that water comes first, taking care of the earth comes first. And so for the past six, seven years, we've been following these salmon for 300 miles, two weeks. And, you know, there's indigenous people, people from all different cultures, you know, as you know, the Bay Area in California is a very diverse place. And it's just been all about that, you know, recognizing that we need to follow indigenous wisdom on whatever territory we're on. Wow, that's such a great cause to be walking for. Um, I think a lot of times when people talk about biodiversity loss, we often forget the cultural aspect of it, right? Like the fact that destroying biodiversity also destroys a cultural treasure and the livelihood of communities. Yeah, and what stood out to me during my conversation with Maria was how she really was interested in the roots of these environmental issues. And to her, it was because we as humans have lost sight of our responsibility to the natural world. She explains, because we have forgotten what our responsibility is and what our role is, we have grown as a collective to think that we're more powerful than, that we are wiser than, that we don't need uh, to be respectful to any other life forms. And that's why we have seen through that amnesia, we've seen the rise of industrialized agriculture, the fossil fuel industry, the big tech boom, all these industries that are completely desecrating and destroying our our waterways, polluting our waterways and pushing our water relatives to the verge of extinction, which is where the salmon are at right now. I don't know if you saw the news, but in California, there was hundreds of adult salmon that did not... They did not make it home to their spawning grounds. And they're already a species that is on the verge of extinction. And it's because there was not enough cold water that was being released for the temperatures to stay cool enough for them to not literally die of heat exhaustion. And so that's why this work is so important for us to really ask ourselves, you know, who are we, right? You know, you don't see birds having existential crises, they know when to migrate. They have not forgotten. The whales know when to migrate. They have not forgotten their role. When beavers, I'm sure you've also, you may have seen beavers, they, they build their dams. A lot of times when pipelines are spilling, it's the beavers that are the first to go and build the dam. They have not forgotten what their sacred role and responsibility is. And so one of the elders that I follow is Chief Kalin Sisk, and she's the one who, you know, tells us, you know, if, if we want to do something good, we need to follow salmon. 
we need to follow the waters. We need to follow the salmon because they follow the waters and they follow Creator. And this is where Naria Garcia saw indigenous communities coming in, because while much of society has become disconnected from the earth, as Naria explains, indigenous communities have not. In fact, the United Nations recognizes that indigenous peoples represent less than 5% of the population, yet steward over 80% of the world's biodiversity, and their knowledge can be used to protect biodiversity. Here were Naria's thoughts on the issue. As Indigenous people, we have not forgotten our responsibility. We understand that we ain't nothing if the river's not clean, that we ain't nothing if, if trees are being cut down, that we're not, you know, Winamum understand that there's no Winamum without salmon. Mexica people understand that there's no Mexica people without corn. We have not forgotten our relationship to the more than human world. And unfortunately, the majority of the people in this world, the unique role that indigenous people that, that we play in these times is helping other people remember that responsibility and our place in the sacred web of life. When I'm in California, I follow California leadership. Why? Because they understand the laws that the creator put on that land. They understand that and they have not forgotten that. They have not forgotten that salmon in the water is a key indicator for the health of the ecosystem. And when there are no salmon, we should be alarmed, right? I wouldn't know that because, I, because I'm, not, I'm not from California. So as indigenous people, when we migrate territories, we need to pay attention to the stories of the original peoples on whose land we're in. That is the unique role that indigenous communities are playing in protecting biodiversity right now. Unfortunately, indigenous rights are left out. I mean, look what happened at the COP this year. You no, know, indigenous people walked out because we have been fighting. And I was there two years ago when it was in Spain. And indigenous people have been carving out a space there for decades, right? Yet we have to fight tooth and nail to be included in and to have our rights respected. And so the, the issues of indigenous rights is that when indigenous rights are not respected, biodiversity is put at risk. Why? Because like, like, like you read the quote before, 80% of the world's biodiversity is in the stewardship of 5% of the world's population. And that 5% is indigenous people. So in order to protect biodiversity, we need to respect and protect indigenous rights. It's too wobbly if we just create, you know, rights for biodiversity without indigenous people who have that traditional ecological knowledge of the biodiversity that's being protected. Yeah, I think this recognition of our connection with and responsibility to protect the earth that indigenous communities have maintained and Nuiya discusses is such an essential part of conservation because it really highlights why it's so important to include and amplify indigenous voices in these conservation efforts as this perspective goes deeper than just specific solutions. As Nuiya puts it, 
We have a shared responsibility as humans to take care of our natural world. But luckily I hear that there are still some groups who do in fact remember this responsibility. Yeah, we have another guest, Pat, who is an ocean activist, enthusiast, and conservationist who founded the company 12 Tides. Here's how he described the inspiration for his work. I spent a number of years in sort of large-scale seafood. I did everything from 100-meter you know, factory trawling vessels to smallholder shrimp farms in Indonesia. And I saw all the bad things about the way our current food system intersects with the oceans. And I thought that that intersection could be a lot more mutually beneficial. While I was sort of doing various things in, in the world of seafood, I started to meet people who were growing kelp on these sort of regenerative ocean farms. And I thought this idea that we can grow nutrient-dense food with zero inputs and have a net positive impact on the surrounding marine environment is really compelling and should be a much bigger part of the food system. And so I started to think of ways we could make that a reality. And I think I'm making, you know, great tasting, but also, you know, highly nutritious, ultra-sustainable snacks out of that was a way to get started on that journey. That's really cool. And what I especially like about 12 Tides is this idea of regenerative ocean farming. Could you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, for Pat, this is a big part of 12 Tides' mission. In the big picture, regenerative food is going to be sort of the movement of our generation for the food system. I think sustainable or like maintaining the status quo isn't good enough anymore. And things need to be you know, an active benefit for the environment and our food system needs to be an active benefit for the environment. And it's capable of being so, but it's going to take a major shift in, you know, every facet of the way we produce and consume food. And so the way we play into that is in the oceanic food system, which right now the oceans cover 70% of the planet, but produce about 2% of our food to feed 10 billion people. I think that equation is going to shift a little bit um, and it's going to be a lot more than 2%. And so there are two ways that that can happen. One is by a proliferation of our current extractive seafood industries. And one is by this new opportunity that we have, which is regenerative ocean farming. And we want to make that regenerative side of it sort of the dominant means of growth in the oceanic food system. Kelp is the number one way to do that. Specifically what I mean in terms of regenerative. So it has a number of benefits for the ocean. Number one, kelp absorbs carbon at an unbelievable rate. So first of all, the oceans absorb about half of the carbon that is in our atmosphere. And the excess of carbon in the oceans is what causes acidification. And acidification is a primary driver of biodiversity loss in the oceans. And as seaweed grows, it absorbs a huge amount of excess carbon in the oceans. And so doing that, at least on a localized level, you sort of mitigate the impacts of acidification on the marine ecosystems, creates a, a much more hospitable place for biodiverse marine life. And if you wanted to you know, sort of look at a study at the ultimate outcomes of that, the Nature Conservancy recently put out a report that sort of measured both the biodiversity and, and abundance of marine life in the areas surrounding kelp farms. And compared to you know, areas without kelp farms and biodiversity was about 30% higher and marine abundance was about 40% higher in the areas surrounding kelp farms. And I think that is sort of a proof point of how kelp can be a truly regenerative 
driving factor um, for the oceans and for our food system, as opposed to older extractive industries. Wow, yeah, I feel like there's so much focus on always just being sustainable. But I like how Pat challenges us to do more than that and actually make things better. Um, It actually reminds me a lot of what Nalia was saying about our responsibility as humans to protect the earth and just really shows the diverse ways that people can live that out. I have also seen that 12 Tide sources their kelp directly from small farmers. So how does this play into their mission of ocean conservation and regenerative farming? I found this idea super interesting as it ties together both the idea of protecting the earth and supporting communities' livelihoods into one. Here's what Pat said. Uh, so we source directly from farmers, uh, no middlemen. You know, we want to help support you know, that shift in coastal economies. So number one, we pay really good prices, um, which allows the farmers to make money, um, which allows them to do things in the most sustainable possible way. And that's the way we want to see the whole ecosystem grow. You know, and we've created a really high value application, um, which, which sort of allows us to do that. From my time in seafood, um, I learned that sometimes food supply chains are a little bit too long. In seafood, sometimes they're really long. You know, a lot of like shrimp that you might be eating, people may not want to hear this, but a lot of shrimp that you might be eating might have been frozen or unfrozen and then refrozen again for like 15 months before you eat it. And it probably changes hands, you know, 10 times in between the shrimp pond and and you. And that length and opacity is what drives unsustainable practices in seafood. It's because, you know, consumers can't, when consumers can't see how it's actually produced because there's so much shit in the middle, then the producers have no incentive to do things the right way. And so I think in general, my general philosophy is that food supply chains should be shorter and people should be able to see exactly where their food is coming from and how it's produced. And I think that is one reason that we work directly with the farmers in the U.S. Yikes, I never realized how long the production lines could be with the seafood industry. Also, from a more general standpoint, did Pat have anything to say about what specifically is the unique role of companies like 12 Tides in protecting the oceans? Yeah, Pat really emphasized the way companies can make positive action possible. This is what he had to say. What's really important for us as a mission-driven company and Part of my job as the CEO is to tie our business to positive ecological impact one for one. And so you can't have one without the other. I think you'll see a lot of companies out there that, and, and I don't want to you know hate on this because I there's some positive element to it, but they're like, okay, so we kind of like have this business and then we donate 1% of our you know sales to this thing sort of on the side and they're like somewhat unrelated. But for me, a, a truly impact-oriented company you know, ties those things so you can't have one without the other. And so for us, it's the sourcing of this regenerative kelp. You know, We can't grow our business unless we're growing more kelp, and more kelp's not going to grow in, unless we grow our business. Because you know, we have like basically whole sets of farms that are sort of carved out you know, and planted for us now. That's, I guess, the role in impact that that we want to create directly 
I'd say that's first. And then secondly, we want to try to build a community around some of these issues related to ocean conservation and restoration to you know, bring people into what are really complex topics um, in a way that's a little bit more digestible and a little bit more positive. Um, so not just like, don't do this, like don't use single use plastic or don't, you know, et cetera, but like, what are the active goods that uh, we can be doing, you know, for the oceans or what are the organizations we can support that are doing good things? Um, we want to try to bring those to light as well. While listening to Pat and Nuia, I feel like one of the main things I have drawn from these conversations is the fact that while each of our connection to our waterways is different, it can be cultural and spiritual, a fond childhood memory, a source of food, and a livable climate, we all rely on the waterways. And one thing I really appreciated was how Pat and Nuia both showed us how each of us can use our different connections as a standpoint from which to support ocean conservation. And to them, conservation is not just about preventing things from getting worse, but instead it's a collective responsibility to make them better. Well, before we close out, I was wondering if Pat and Nuia had any advice or wisdom for young people specifically looking to take next steps. Yeah, so overall, Pat had a lot of good practical advice for young people looking to start a company with social impact. This is what he was talking about. I got a couple pieces of advice. So I I think first of all, you have to pick something that you are over the top passionate about because the only thing that I can guarantee you in starting a business is that you're going to get punched in the face like a hundred times in a row. And in order to stand up again, you know, after you get punched in the face for that hundredth time, you have to be like insanely passionate about the thing that you're doing um, almost irrationally. So, And so I I think you got to pick that thing that like goes beyond, like, I think this could be a good business or like, I could like make a lot of money here. Maybe we could like sell this for something one day. Like that can't be the only reason. Cause I, I, at least, you know, for me, that would never be enough to, you know, help me stand up after um, getting punched in the face so many times. Secondly, I would say just like do it, get out there. You know, we started, I was like making stuff in my kitchen. I came back with like garbage bags full of kelp and we're like experimenting with different chip types. And I went to a farmer's market and I would bring different chips every week and, and see what people liked the most. And this is pre COVID obviously, but you know, you give your chips to people and they try them and they, I got everything from like, this is the best thing ever to people like spitting it out and calling it dog food. And I think you have to like allow yourself to be sort of vulnerable in that way because you are going to get like negative feedback, but just starting and like getting out there is the best way to sort of expedite your development process and like really understand what your idea is and who you're catering to, what your customer is, what your value prop is, start to zone in on product market fit. Nuria really encouraged young people to change the way they address and think about environmental issues. When asked what advice she had for young people, here's what she said. Listen to Indigenous people. Follow Indigenous leadership. Learn the names of your rivers. Be, you know, just watchdog what's happening with your local rivers. Because water is life. And if we're not taking care of water, 
they're going to be selling life right back to us. And if we don't get a job, we're not going to be literally able to afford to live. So I think as young people, we need to feel that responsibility and feel that entitlement. It's our future. But ultimately, you know, wherever you are, find out who the indigenous people are on the territory that you're at. Find that and find out what is happening to your water and just humble down, humble down and be in service. Because, you know, as young people, we may feel the urgency, we may feel the rage, but there's, there, you know, there's been elders who been in this fight for a long time and we, we have to work together. We have to, you know, couple our passion and our energy with the wisdom and patience of those wise elders so that we can work together in, in a good way. To end this episode, Jesse and Luca, do you have any action items for us? Take Maria up on her advice and find the indigenous communities in your area to see what work they're doing and what you can do to help. And of course, go and support 12 Tides. We have included a link in our show notes to their website where you can go try some of their kelp chips. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Operations Climate's Threat to Nature series. To stay updated about future episodes, subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and review. If you want to stay updated on other Operation Climate things, follow us on our socials. We are at Operation Climate on Instagram and TikTok and at OpClimate on Twitter. You can find a transcript of this episode and other episode-related resources on our website at bit.ly slash Operation Climate Podcast.